Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Carmen Pugliafito, and I'm pleased to have today with me Dr. Paul Finger, who is a world authority on the management of ocular tumors. He's clinical professor at uh, the New York University School of Medicine, the, uh, directs the ocular tumor service at New York Eye and Ear Infirmary, and is chairman of the Eye Cancer Foundation. So done lots of great things. Also, also has been involved as a CEO of a startup, Liberty Vision, which is involved in some innovative therapeutic development. So welcome to Retina Synthesis, Paul. Thank you so much. And thank you for inviting me, Carl. Well, our, the focus of our series is typically on new developments in medical retina, treatment of age-related macular degeneration, diabetic retinopathy. But there's lots going on with uh, the management of choroidal melanoma. Can you yeah. tell us today what the, the leading developments are in the management of choroidal melanoma? Well, from, from the start, the biggest thing that's probably happened in, in choroidal melanoma is staging. Uh, aging, the American Joint Committee on Cancer, which I'm the chairman of the Ophthalmic Oncology Task Force, has introduced uh, through a 60-person multi-center international effort uh, a standardized method of staging ocular tumors, specifically choroidal melanoma, which is very exciting because uh, some work done by Taro Cavella uh, showed that tumor width and tumor height could be used to uh, prognosticate the risk for metastatic death. And that was seconded by two other studies, including one that I put together as another international multi-center effort. And so with, 19, with the results of 19,000 patients, which is, is, is almost twice, more than twice what was used to validate the HACC for skin melanoma. Uh, we know that those size criteria are pretty accurate for, for diagnosing uh, metastatic disease. You know, that's on the, uh, on the diagnostic side, uh, but on, also on the diagnostic side, there's a lot of stuff going on right now with tumor biopsies. I'm sure that uh, with the retina vitreous audience that everyone's uh, heard of or seen tumor biopsies being performed, a ton of genetic information has been garnered uh, from those biopsies. Unfortunately, uh, treatments have not been married to the genetic information like we see, say, with uh, breast cancer. Uh, the melanomas are a little tougher. Uh, there is a new drug that's uh, sort of genetically uh, uh, driven, but uh, those normal things that we look for are mostly prognostic indicators. And they will, because I'm still chair of the committee and Dr. Taro Cavella is interested in putting together a group, want to put the, together those size criteria together with the genetic criteria to make the prognostic uh, staging system even better. So what is the, the management of a newly diagnosed choroidal melanoma patient? Yeah, it's interesting, you know, the COMS study, which goes back a bit, uh, found that there was no survival advantage to removing the eye. And since that time, uh, the indications for treatment have gotten wider and wider. And now, basically, almost everyone gets uh, irradiated, uh, either with plaque or a proton uh, beam. So uh, the most patients are treated. The, the problem we have in diagnosis is is like for medium, for medium and large tumors, it's easy, but for small tumors, it's, it's more difficult. And so uh, I actually developed a mnemonic called MOST, 
M-O-S-T, where melanoma equals orange pigment, subretinal fluid and thickness of two or more millimeters. And for those uh, retina vitreous people who are looking at a suspicious nevus, look for those three, because if all three are present, most likely that's a melanoma. Um, as far as uh, therapeutic changes, um, we're still at plaques and, and, and protons. Uh, not a lot new has come up in the last uh, five or 10 years. Uh, we're getting a little more sophisticated in how we make these devices. Uh, the American Brachytherapy Society, which uh, asked me to chair an initiative, another multi-center international initiative, suggested that everybody compare the radiation dose within the eye before they actually treat the patient. So a lot of centers now are comparing palladium versus iodine versus ruthenium plaques and to see what structures are being radiated and how much so that we can figure out what, which radiation is gonna allow for the best long-term visual preservation, vision preservation. Uh, so that's, that's, that's new, that's newer. What, uh, what are the indications for tumor biopsy? Um, indication, well, that's interesting. The, again, like the COMS study found that 99.6% of the time, a eye cancer specialist can tell whether it's a melanoma or not. So the old indications that were, that were mortalized by Jim Augsberger was atypical tumor, uh, metastatic tumor with an unknown primary, and when the patient wanted to have a pathologic diagnosis. And of course, that's changed a lot, and people are doing a lot of biopsies now. Uh, it's, uh, they are getting genetic information, but right now there's really little therapeutic advantage. Some centers are, are actually using the genetics. So if you have a bad GEP or BAP1 or monosomy 3, uh, then they might uh, see patients more often or scan their, their livers more often. Uh, but we have to be careful with that because there's other factors besides uh, size and genetics that that play a role in patients developing metastatic disease, like age, for instance. Younger people tend to get less metastatic disease than older people. So molecular diagnostics in terms of prognostic uh, situation, that there's been a ton of talk about that in the last decade. Do you right. do, you do that? I offer it to everyone. Uh, I've. Uh, developed a couple of new techniques for biopsying intraocular tumors over the years. And so I have no problem doing it, but I don't like to do anything that doesn't offer the patient some advantage. And as you know, anytime we enter the eye, uh, we do have risk of uh, infection, hemorrhage, mm -hmm. renal detachment, uh, plaques, which I primarily use for treatment are all extraocular procedures. So the eye is not invaded. And that offers me the chance to do, uh, to deliver uh, on visual acuity and, and local control. One yeah. think about it, if the tumor hemorrhages and you for some reason have trouble localizing the plaque with ultrasound and you wanna do ophthalmoscopy with sterile depression, it's gonna be a lot harder if the patient is, uh, has a vitreous hemorrhage on top of their, uh, on yeah. top of their so I try to do everything I can to maximize local control. And that's probably one of the reasons why my local control rates now are 99.7%. Mm -hmm. um, are patients interested in knowing their prognosis from a molecular basis? Uh, yeah. And I think that you can tell them their prognosis based on tumor size also, which is non-invasive. Mm -hmm. uh, 
one, but think about it also, if you have, let's say you have a bad molecular prognosis and you have comorbidities like heart disease or some other cancer, and a lot of these folks have multiple cancers, do you really want to have that black cloud sort of hanging over people? And there's been some um, patient reported outcome studies that show that patients are do carry worry uh, along with them. So I'm not sure that there's, uh, I think you need to offer it to people and explain these things to people, but I don't routine them to routinely perform uh, tumor biopsies. Mm -hmm. Now that, I think that's, that sounds sensible uh, in terms of practical management. What's new on the, on metastatic disease, anything? Yeah, there's a new drug. Um, you know, the drugs are so hard to pronounce these days. I wrote it down. I, I, spent, I send all my patients to uh, Anna Pavlik at Cornell. She's just a wonderful medical oncologist. Uh, she co-wrote the chapter uh, in DaVita's uh, Cancer with me. And uh, there's a new drug uh, called T-E-B-E-N-T-A-S-F-S-U-B, Tebentisfusb. And uh, it is a, a molecule. It's not one of those things that's directly related to BAP1 or GNAC or, or monosomy uh, 3, uh, but it does uh, appear to have very, be very hopeful in diminishing uh, the rate of growth of, of uh, metastatic lesions. As you know, there's really no great uh, immunotherapy. I, I can tell you from my experience with Dr. Pavlik is that an artful medical oncologist can keep folks alive by treating their fine early detection and treating their livers and other sites of metastatic disease before a fulminant event. Uh, but right now we don't have a cure, unfortunately. So can you talk a little bit about your, your work as an entrepreneur in the, uh, the, the uh, medical device space? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, it's interesting. I got into uh, building a company nine years ago, and it was because I, uh, I had patented a device originally for uh, uh, treatment of the macula with, with lights. I had done some work with IPLAX, putting diode lights on them, and, and that was all published. And what would, what would happen is the edges of the plaque had lights, so you sew it in and then you plug it in. And then you look inside the eye through the pupil and you see four lights around the tumor and you know exactly where the plaque is. And anyone who puts in plaques knows that it's nice to get that reassurance, that much reassurance, it's almost impossible otherwise. But, but is a putting on my business hat and I do have to wear a lot of hats these days. Uh, I realized that first it's electronic. So to get something through the FDA that's electronic and there, was, there must be a better way. And I actually had a, um, a an uh, industrial designer come to me and show me how this could be done uh, with fiber optics. So once we got rid of the electronics, uh, we developed a, a fiber optic uh, handheld applicator that could hold a radioactive source uh, in place on the back of the eye and where you could look through the pupil and see the lights and know exactly where the where this radiation source was between the lights. And that was pretty remarkable because, you know, we all come in, uh, we, we Drive, uh, fly airplanes and or passengers in airplanes and we come into at night and we, we can come in on the runway and there's a row of lights on either side of the runway and we know that's a it's a, a leap of faith that there's going to be a runway between those lights right 
And so we know when we look through that pupil that there is a radiation source exactly between, symmetrically between those lights, and we can tell exactly where we're radiating. Uh, the other thing I learned in, uh, about being an entrepreneur is that most entrepreneurs actually in their 50s and 60s, because they sort of been through the industry for a while, and they know what, they re what the industry could really use. And this was uh, also played a factor because I knew that I wanted a radiation source that was high dose rate, which means that it's not going to be dwelling there for a week. And I wanted something that only went into the eye a few millimeters because why would I want to radiate anything other than what I was trying to radiate? And so uh, that was the basic principles beside, behind, the, divide, uh, behind the, the design of the Liberty Vision uh, devices. Uh, we have a source uh, which uh, will be in multiple sizes and we have two handheld applicators, one for the front of the eye and one for the back of the eye. And I, did, I, I invite you all to go to libertyvision.com and take a look. They're pretty, pretty nice. They're uh, translucent and uh, very uh, ergonomical. They weigh less than, than a pen. And so it's really easy to handle them uh, and, uh, and place them. So uh, what are the clinical indications for their use? Uh, FDA has proved it for ocular tumors and benign growths. So uh, how would you imagine using it in a real world setting? <laughs> yeah, so um, that's up to interpretation of the physician. Uh, I'm definitely uh, planning to use it for ocular tumors uh, and, uh, and uveal melanoma, very small uveal melanomas. Mm -hmm. uh, I hope one day we have much larger devices for larger melanomas and we can even uh, change the, the radiation source, sort of custom make it to different depths that need to be, uh, that need be uh, reached uh, as we go along. What's the, radiation, what's the radiation source now? It's yttrium-90. So yttrium-90 is interesting uh, source because uh, the old strontium-90 was really strontium-yttrium. Uh, it, was a, it was a secular equilibrium, which means that the strontium was giving off yttrium, and that was really the therapeutic part. The strontium didn't go very far, and the yttrium did go about four millimeters. And so when we were doing those old pterygiums and things like that with the old strontium applicator, not too many people even remember them, but it's like, it was like a steel rod with a round uh, flat disc on the end where you put it on the eye, and it was sort of bulky and heavy difficult to hold and uh, it did uh, but it did the job and there's a lot of there's a lot of clinical uh, work on using that device uh, this device is, is got rid of all that it got it made it something that was lighter than a pen and could be placed just about anywhere and you didn't have to worry about a lot of the uh, the, the, the heaviness of it because these treatments often take five to 15 minutes so Imagine trying to hold something for five that's really heavy for five to 15 minutes. It wouldn't be practical uh, for, for the surgeon. So, you know, I basically used my experience of being a physician since uh, the mid 80s to say, what if I was going to design something to make it as easy to use and, and for many things, uh, many ocular tumors and benign growths, how would I do it? And that's what we came up with with the Liberty Vision devices. That's very exciting. So how much, how much time do you devote to uh, the Liberty Vision and how do you balance that's demands with your very busy clinical and research practice? 
Well, I don't know. I get things done. I'm, I'm made, perhaps uh, I don't spend as I don't spend as much time uh, as I should not working. But but uh, I did condense my practice a bit, and I do spend uh, Monday, Fridays, and, and lots of the weekends doing the revision. I have some wonderful people working for me. I was very very lucky to find uh, very talented uh, engineers and uh, clerical people and support staff, scientific people. And because of my experience being, you know, I was, I was asked to be in the TG149, which you probably don't know what it is. It's American Association for Physicists and Medicine had a task group to figure out how to do phys medical physics for IPLAX. And I was the only ophthalmologist, definitely, and probably, I don't know, I think I might've been the only physician that would be invited to that. And, and I learned, and I learned, and more than that, I, I met a lot of really, really smart people. And so what did I do with this business? I reached out to those smart people and I made uh, like Mark, Dr. Mark Rivard, who's a brilliant medical physicist, and I brought him into the scientific board and, and uh, Wolfgang Sauerwein, who is a leading or the top ophthalmic uh, radiation oncologist in Europe uh, and brought them all in. I said, you know, the more experience that we can get together with the better the device will be. So it's really been a wonderful educational experience and, and uh, just learning to be CEO too is, is something I was always, I'm in private practice. So I've been CEO of the New York Eye Cancer Center, but it's not the same, you know, you have all kinds of other issues and, uh, that, uh, uh, that come up with, uh, with the company. What do you think the biggest research initiatives should be and the management of ocular tumors? Yeah, right now, I think the most important thing we can do, uh, there's two things really, and one of them we're doing. Uh, the Eye Cancer Foundation is uh, reaching out around the world to uh, train ophthalmologists to go back to their unserved or underserved country to treat retinoblastoma. Uh, about 60 to 70% of patients with retinoblastoma around the world die, and less than 1% in the United States. And the difference is there's some there are people who know how to treat them here and there's treatments here. And so when I learned that, I decided to uh, focus the foundation on training people to go back to their countries. And we've trained over 50 people so far. I realize it's just the beginning. They have to be equipped, uh, but we're working on it. And I'm hoping that that is something that's, that it just keeps going. You know, we're planting seeds and hopefully they'll grow into a forest. Uh, the second thing, which is really important, and it's already happening in retina, but really needs to happen in ocular oncology too, is machine learning. Uh, and that is, we need to be able to feed thousands of images, what I call educated images, images that come with a description, and develop machines that can help us diagnose tumors. I think it's a reasonable goal. Uh, it's quite difficult goal. Um, it's, I think it's, it may be, maybe, I'm not sure, maybe easier with, with uh, other diseases because there's less variety in some of the other diseases, but I think it's something that should be done. And uh, I, I would also be interested if a group wanted to get together uh, to raise money and make that happen. Well, Paul, this has been a, a, a wonderful discussion about your experiences and your vision for the future. And congratulations on the great work that you've been doing and uh, fantastic outreach. Thanks Thank for you, joining Carmen. us on, on Retinal Synthesis. Thank you, Carmen. It's a pleasure. Pleasure to see you again.